Revolutions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. Recorded live at WBAI 99.5 in Brooklyn every Wednesday at 9 p.m. RPM's about doing the work. The work to build a democratic socialist future. Each week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in New York City. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. Yo, what's, what's good, New York? This is Jack Devine, he, him pronouns, and you are tuning in to Revolutions Per Minute, live on WBAI 99.5 FM. We're a socialist radio show and podcast for members of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America. DSA is the largest socialist organization in the United States, with 95,000 members nationwide, and NYC DSA is its biggest chapter. We are run by our 9,000-plus members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. Amazon Labor Union scored a big victory for the labor movement last month when organized workers overwhelmingly won an NLRB election at a Staten Island Amazon facility. Yet, most of Amazon and the private sector in general remains unorganized. Despite a valiant effort, LU's next attempt at a different Amazon facility failed. What is to be done? Brian, a former Amazon worker and member of DSA Labor's Logistics Committee, joins us to discuss organizing at Amazon and the state of the labor movement. But first, the headlines. Hey, what's up, New York City? This is Amy Wilson with your headlines for today, Wednesday, May 18th. In local news, an 18-year-old white supremacist was charged with first-degree murder after targeting black shoppers in Buffalo, New York. It was the deadliest mass shooting in the United States this year, with 10 dead. Governor Hochul has called for stricter gun laws and social media monitoring in response to the massacre. We send solidarity and condolences to the community of Buffalo, New York, the workers of Topps Grocery Store, and all those who were affected by this latest outbreak of white supremacist, racist violence. Mayor Adams has now lost a quarter of the value of the first three paychecks he collected upon taking office, which he converted into cryptocurrency. Mayor Adams has so far been unsuccessful in lobbying Albany for several of his priorities, including extension of mayoral control of schools and home rule control over traffic enforcement cameras. 25-year-old Deshaun Carter died while awaiting trial on Rikers Island. He is the fourth person to die while in city custody this year amidst significant concerns about safety on the premises. An independent federal monitor found that 29% of NYPD stop and frisks were not properly documented. NYPD First Deputy Commissioner Edward Caban, the second highest ranking member of the police department, was accused of cheating on his sergeant's exam and disciplined in four more misconduct cases over his police career. State legislators are debating a bill that would provide immunity from prosecution for sex workers who report crimes. Advocates say this bill would give people the courage to come forward when they are assaulted. In elections news, a new pro-Israel group has formed in New York State with the explicit intent to oppose New York City DSA's electoral campaigns. This is the first time a pro-Israel group has formed to solely influence state-level politics in the U.S. 
City and state has outlined a possible timeline of New York's chaotic and ongoing redistricting process. Turning now to international news, this past Sunday, May 15th, was Nakba Day, the significant date held by Palestinians as a commemoration of the Zionist displacement of their people and destruction of their homes, a wrong which continues to this day 74 years later. Locally, thousands rallied in Bay Ridge for an annual Nakba Day protest organized primarily by Within Our Lifetime, a Palestinian youth-led grassroots organization. This year's Nakba Day commemorations come amidst ongoing violence in Palestine, including last week's killing of noted journalist Shireen Abu Akleh by Israeli forces in the occupied West Bank. A funeral procession for Abu Akleh last Friday in Jerusalem was also attacked by Israeli police forces who set off stun grenades and attacked mourners with batons. Amidst the ever-present violence of a settler colonial occupation in Palestine and the censorship and restriction experienced by many here in the U.S., Palestinians and their allies in the United States are continuing to advocate for the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement, or BDS, among other strategies for Palestinian liberation. This week, United States Congresswoman and Detroit DSA member Rashida Tlaib introduced a House resolution to recognize the Nakba and Palestinian refugee rights. The resolution is co-sponsored by DSA members Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Jamal Bowman, and Cori Bush, as well as allies Ilan Omar, Betty McCollum, and Marie Newman. Revolutions Per Minute stands in solidarity with all those fighting for Palestinian liberation, whether in the halls of Congress, on campus, or in the streets. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free within our lifetime. I'm Amy Wilson. Now back to the studio for tonight's show. Our headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, an incredible weekly newsletter by NYC DSA Electoral Working Group covering local politics and radical activism. Subscribe at thethorn.nyc.substack.com. Hey, Brian, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Well, thank you for joining us. And uh, we before we dive into today's topic, I just want to, you know, give our audience a little bit of a background of uh, what you've been involved in. So what social forces propelled you into the socialist movement? Why did you join DSA in particular? And what kind of organizing have you been involved in? Uh, yeah, so thanks uh, for having me on. Um, I originally got into the DSA because I uh, had been alienated from my, my career and my work as a baker. Um, I was looking for... Um, people who had similar politics or, or politics that I could um, could meet. And uh, I really just had a desire for change. And it was around the time when the um, second Bernie campaign was kicking into gear. And that really, um, I loved Bernie's uh, messaging and I loved what he stood for. And just the chapter itself um, had people in it that I could uh, identify with a little bit. And so that's what made it a place that I wanted to get involved with and start doing work. Um, but uh, originally, you're going back a little further, um, uh, when I was a young man, I read uh, Covert Action Quarterly, uh, which is a magazine um, that was scholarly and interesting. It was mostly about uh, the U.S.'s foreign policy, and it just really opened my eyes uh, as an 18-year-old when I had never um, really seen that in the mainstream media, any information about um, you know, uh, everything from um, our bends um, to 
uh, uh, Mossadegh in uh, Iran and a lot of other um, places where we were overthrowing democratically elected leaders. And um, it really kind of made me think um, that there was a lot of propaganda in our own country and maybe start down a path towards socialism. Learning about the history of the CIA coups or CIA back coups in Guatemala and, and Iran was definitely an enlightening moment for myself as well. So I think we have some overlap there as well as uh, the Bernie campaigns being a, a critical moment and eye opening and seeing the sort of transformative politics that was possible in today's world. So and now that we've kind of got a little bit of your background, I'm just uh, curious, we're going to be talking about Amazon today. And so uh, what makes organizing a labor unit at an Amazon facility so difficult? There's a couple different factors. Um, the first, of course, is there's 150% turnover um, year to year at Amazon. So um, I think Chris Smalls, amongst other people, has has mentioned um, you lose workers almost as fast as you can um, recruit or organize workers. So that's a factor for sure. The other factor is that Amazon advertises um, the job uh, in many ways, subtly or not so subtly, as a gig job. Um, a lot of people come on to Amazon thinking, I'm going to do this to work temporarily, especially during the pandemic when Amazon was very aggressively hiring, when a lot of their places were not. Um, but... Uh, the other factor is just, I think, um, the, the churn and the, uh, burnout that's designed into the Amazon system for workers, where it really just, um, truncates and shuts down any idea of a democratically organized workplace because so much of it is designed to pit workers against each other, um, and to create, um, a constant level of competition and frustration amongst the workers. And that, so that's a really, um, big factor there as well. You know, oftentimes you'll find a worker is a worker who's angry enough to start organizing is also angry enough to quit Amazon. And so, um, you know, I, I, the factor that I think uh, plays into this a lot that Jane McAlevey identifies, um, as a labor organizer, um, you know, when she, she talks about the great resignation being the opposite of what we really want to do if we want to build labor power, um, and, and identifies how ALU, did the opposite. They stayed instead of um, changing jobs and really uh, invested in that change. And that's daunting for some workers. You know, uh, I was talking to workers last night at a socialist job fair that we put on here in Portland. Um, and uh, some of the workers were really concerned about the idea of it sounds like organizing is a second job. And I am also concerned about when you talk to workers about organizing, they're concerned about having to talk to their people because that's one of the biggest um, fears people have is public speaking or or rejection uh, when talking to somebody, um, asking someone to do something or or trying to engage someone without um, without training is can be daunting sometimes. People can get kind of scared about that. So a lot of my work is um, talking to workers and letting them know it doesn't have to be that um, onerous. It can be just small steps, especially at first. It's more about knowing one person. And I also tell them, you know, for example, I'm an introvert, you know, uh, and I can do organizing. So I think other people can too. You hit on a number of really interesting points there. One is that the particular conditions of Amazon, as you said, there's so much turnover. New people are coming in every day. Uh, every month, it seems like half the workforce could be entirely different than it was a month before. And, as you said, and maybe you can elaborate on this a little bit more, that there's a, a system of competition between the workers at Amazon that really uh, you know, pulls people apart and makes um, organizing more difficult. Is there anything uh, you want to add to that? 
uh, how they how Amazon goes about doing that? Sure. Um, so one of the ways they, I mean, they've certainly built their system around high churn, right? They expect to, to use up workers and burn through them. Um, workers are the disposable part of their equation. That's made very clear when you work there or even from the outside, you can kind of see it. Um, but the, the system that are set up is, um, you know, a trillion dollar company, um, routinely doesn't have enough time clocks, doesn't have enough pallet jacks, doesn't have enough scan hand scanners, doesn't have enough batteries for their hand scanners doesn't have enough of all the materials that workers actually need to do the jobs. So you have workers constantly trying to find or um, or grab uh, a pallet jack from someone else or equipment from someone else. Um, at the same time, all, half of that equipment, uh, the ones that have computer screens, you have to answer a survey before you can use it about um, two to three times during your shift that you don't want to answer. Usually it's uh, usually, you know, uh, feels a little bit like an interrogation. But um, the competition there is, is set up also. So say, for example, in an FC, a fulfillment center where you're pulling lots of goods from a, a dock um, to stations where people are stowing, um, they're constantly setting up those workers to compete with each other for the same amount of materials so that um, someone loses, right? It, it's not having enough materials for the job. It's not enough materials. So workers are pitted against each other to get that material to actually fulfill the requirements for their team. Um, additionally, because um, the things that are incentivized inside of Amazon are speed and efficiency, uh, the things that aren't incentivized are safety, right? There's no like, oh, you get a scratch-off ticket for, for being the safest or anything else. That's not a concern particularly. And safety is really obviously, if, if when you look at, um, so for example, the state of Washington, just north of, of where I live, um, last year they passed a law uh, requiring Amazon to pay a 15% higher um, workers' comp rate because they injure workers at such a high rate that is now da- classified as more dangerous working at Amazon than mechanized logging or law enforcement, for example, right? And that's that's a high injury rate, and it's year over year the constant. So so the high injury rate has to do with when you have high turnover, you can't actually build safety teams, right? People have to ha- have time working with each other build that that workplace camaraderie and that connection. And Amazon doesn't want that. They want workers to be plugged in for a moment and not have teams. And that's where you get hurt, right? Because you don't know who you're working with. You don't know um, the requirements for the job and you're undertrained. And, and so that's what creates a lot of that competition and that level of um, uh, anti-solidarity efforts by, by Amazon to make that happen on the workforce, in my opinion. So denying workers the resources they need to get their job done, putting them against each other for those resources, surveilling workers whenever they're doing tasks by having these sort of surveys and other mechanisms of control within the workplace and creating a very uh, dangerous and unsafe environment for workers kind of makes this uh, seemingly a terrible place to work in a lot of ways and a place that it's really difficult to build solidarity. And as you mentioned, building solidarity and organizing is challenging regardless. You have to, people have to get out of their comfort zone. You have to make asks of people. You have to be willing to put yourself on the line and talk about what you believe in. So how is Amazon Labor Union able to uh, overcome all these odds at the Staten Island facility? Like why were they successful? What was their strategy? Yeah, I, so I, I certainly don't want to, um, over suggest that I, that I know this more familiar than anybody at ALU. I don't, cause I'm, I'm a, a long way away from there, but from what I've read and the analysis that I've seen and some of the conversations that I was able to have with other organizers, um, 
the, the biggest factor is clearly that they have an incredible ground game and they were able to sustain that over time. And I think that was what um, clearly created the difference for them at their location, that two years of sustained and continual work with workers, even with a high turnover rate, um, meant they couldn't be third-partied. They were clearly all Amazon workers and not some outside force, you know, because obviously, um, or not obviously, um, employers love to third-party unions or love to third-party organizers and say, oh, these are outside influencers. They don't they don't have the relationship you and I have, um, and they're just trying to take advantage of you, where you know me. Um, and that's successful sometimes with workers. Sometimes workers will, uh, will take that on pretty, pretty well. Uh, so they couldn't third-party them, so that's, that's a huge... And then at the same time, uh, those workers um, uh, really kept up the pressure and continued to do a overt and kind of almost 1920s or 1930s style. We're just going to camp out in front of the building here as well as in on the inside, and we're going to be here out here every day and just, just make it so that um, it's clear that we're here to stay and it's clear that we're not giving up. Um, I think they were brilliant in some of their structure tests in terms of like, Getting everybody to wear, I mean, getting everybody to wear shirts inside, getting a lot of people also to push back, um, against the constant union busting. I think that was a factor. And I have a theory, and this is my own theory and maybe not well sourced, is that the, the continual union busting may have actually been a detriment to Amazon in the long term. Cause at a certain point, I think workers get tired of that. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a tactic designed to wear down workers. But if you start in from day one and they're just constantly telling you over and over again, at a certain point, you might um, start to resent it, I think. So I think that actually had a, a counter effect that was to the benefit of the Amazon organizers. That and the fact that they could use those meetings to also make their points. They would go into meetings and make it very clear about how much these uh, union busters are being paid, about all the factors there. But um, I, I think the other thing that was really important was they had a core, the people that worked together doing a salt campaign. Um, which means you're taking a job for the purpose of organizing your coworkers and you're, you're, you're there for the long haul, right? Uh, that's a couple year commitment, usually minimum to actually do that work. And it's a very successful tactic. There are other unions in the United States that spend millions on this tactic and really hone it down. Um, Unite Here is one of those that is very, very successful. Um, but it's also something that, um, has to be carefully done. You really have to, um, build that team and make sure you're supported and then, um, commit, right? It's a, it's a commitment to that fight, strike, fight and that struggle, which ALU clearly had at, at JFK. It seems like they had a few factors working in their favor in combination with a, a brilliant and kind of widespread strategy uh, where they, they took in a, a number of different tactics and combined it uh, into being able to, to build this organization and, and build this union successfully. One, as you said, with the kind of the constant union busting, maybe made workers think, oh, this is actually something that we may want. If Amazon is so against us, there's got to be a reason why. If they're creating all these horrible conditions in the workplace, they don't want a union. Maybe I do actually want one, and it's going to benefit my life. And I think something that I was uh, reading was that a number of uh, the voters had actually, and some of the organizers had union members in their family. So being here in New York, where we have, as compared to the rest of the country, especially in New York City, a higher unionization rate, people see that unions benefit their lives, that they're able to have uh, better living conditions, higher wages, better benefits. So there's kind of a, a union culture that exists here in New York that was helpful. 
And then on top of that, you, uh, an interesting fact that I w- uh, was able to read was that they they had read, and you mentioned kind of bringing some of the 1920s, 1930s strategies. Well, they had read William Z. Uh, Foster's um, book on organizing the steel workers and, and took some lessons from that. Uh, so I think there's, and in, in kind of having these, these deep organizing roots within the union uh, and within the workplace, was they were really able to, to build up uh, a steady organization, build up relationships, and have these, these cookouts where they served all this variety of food. They were able to connect with so many different workers in so many different ways. But I just want to remind our listeners that you are tuning in to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. Today we're talking about Amazon Labor Union the, and the broader state of the labor movement. So, Brian, how can uh, ALU success be replicated, and what other labor organizations are involved in this broader struggle to organize Amazon? Yeah, that's 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 the central question, right? Is like how how can we do what ALU did for sure? Um, I, I think one of the big factors that I really admire from that campaign and appreciate it heavily is um, they had um, an ideological diversity amongst their the people that they recruited into the salting campaign and into the campaign. The workers came from a variety of backgrounds, and that made a big difference there. I've been in um, in talks with some workers who are organizing inside Amazon, and sometimes we've had – this is not with ALU, but with other organizations that have had kind of a, um, a position where they're, like, saying we should only organize with this group or this uh, type of people because they ha- are more likely to organize or they have better instincts toward organizing or whatever else they would say around that. And – and, you know, ALU, uh, the, the interview with Nathan Robinson with uh, one of the core organizers was amazing because she talks about how um, one of their core organizers was a person that they refer to as Uncle Pat, who is a Republican Trump supporter who recruited more than 200 uh, people from no votes to yes votes inside that, that, that place. And that m- makes a big difference, I think, um, that you understand that you have a broad uh, cross-section of the working class inside Amazon, right? And that you need a majority of workers to be on board, which uh, I think that intelligence and that ability to recognize that is not something that everyone shares and that not every organizing effort has in place. So that they were able to do that um, um, speaks volumes, right? That's a really critical, critical aspect to it. Um, I think also it's, you know, the, the extra, so the other organizations that are, you asked, sorry, you, you asked about other organizations that are doing organizing within Amazon. And I'll say that there's a couple that I'm aware of, um, you know, Amazon Labor Union just recently popped up and they've been amazing over the last two years. Um, obviously, RWDSU was doing some work in Bessemer, Alabama, and their second, you know, their second attempt also failed there. Um, we'll see if they continue to do that work, um, but they... Uh, have had a more external strategy, I think, in some ways. And we can talk about that if you want, but I think there's been some great analysis, uh, including by Jay McLevy out there in the nation. But um, uh, the the factor, I think, also is that, that I found interesting that I'm not sure if I'm, I'm 100% on with the ALU strategy was that they didn't do home visits. And I've had a lot of pushback in the last few years. You know, that's home visits are kind of the holy grail of uh, organizing, if you're especially if you're doing deep organizing and fighting for a, a very serious campaign. Um, but uh, also we're in a time where a lot of people, not a lot, but some people get pretty hostile about people showing up their door. And that's common. And maybe it was common in the past as well. 
Um, but they didn't decide to do that at the ALU um, locations. And I don't know if that would have served them better on the second um, attempt at the, at the, at the JF, sorry, at the LBJ location. But um, I think it's still an interesting factor there that some people are hostile at and it's something we're still trying to figure out. But uh, I think also the other organizations that you asked about, and sorry, I'm going a little scattershot here, is some of the other organizations you asked about um, that are involved in Amazon would be the Teamsters are definitely doing some work on this and have been doing some work across the U.S. Um, I don't know in the past, I don't know how you know far along they are in some cases, but they certainly are interested and expressed interest. Um, APWU, a Postal Workers Union, the president of that um, organization has expressed some interest in, or, in organizing Amazon. Um, uh, Amazonians United is a collective that works uh, around the world. So they're in Italy and Poland and other countries and the United States. Um, and they uh, have a different strategy more where they do minority unionism is, is what I, I would call it. Um, where basically they're not seeking a majority and they're not seeking a contract. Um, and that's a different strategy. They've had some success with that. But I, I my personal analysis is it has some some really good instincts and some really good grounding in focusing with the workers and focusing on a militant worker base. Like that's the essence I think of all of this and is, is a, the best lesson to take away, I think in a lot of cases. But I also think at the same time, um, the minority unionism, I, I have a different feeling on that where I would much rather go for a contract for a lot of reasons. And I share that with ALU in the sense that I think a contract is, is a stronger position for workers. Um, so, so those are the people who are involved. I, I the, the Amazonians United um, does a lot of training and, and is a, a, in a lot of places in the U.S., um, but I, 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 I find it interesting. There's a lot of different, slightly different tactics and a lot of different people trying, um, you know, seeing what works in a lot of ways. It's a, it's a laboratory uh, in some cases. I think because it's such an you know expansive corporation that has these warehouses and facilities all across the country and has so much power that it's it's necessary to to try all these different approaches and see what works. It's great that ALU was able to successfully win in an NLRB election. Um, but we've also seen with some of the Amazonians United uh, tactics that they were able to win some improvements in the workplace. So we'll see if maybe down the line, how the teamsters are going to approach uh, their organizing strategy, what they're going to be targeting, especially with their broader work and logistics uh, and whether we'll see, Anything like we brought up the 1930s before, um, a key uh, tactic in the massive unionization that happened during that era, during the New Deal period with the UAW is like sit down strikes for authorization. So I'm, I'm curious if we'll see anything like that uh, as this movement continues to grow. Uh, but I, I, you said that you, uh, you could elaborate further on um, – kind of maybe a comparison between the elections that went down in Alabama and what happened in New York. Uh, is there anything you want to add on that? Um, I, I, you know, one of the big takeaways that I thought was really important out of the Bessemer Alabama uh, campaign was um, they, uh, it seemed like they could have better connected with the community around them and built more community support. Um, Jay McAlevey, you know, mentioned, for example, uh, religious leaders would have been great to connect there. It's a, it's a pretty heavily religious community. Um, obviously, or not so obviously, uh, the bargaining size was misidentified for the first campaign, and that meant they were scrambling a lot, I think, and the second campaign hopefully had some better organization, but I think still struggled from a lot of things. You know, one thing that I thought was 
telling about that campaign was the president, I believe, of RWDSU at one point went in front of the, of the press and said, hey, don't worry about joining a union because this is a right to work state. You don't have to pay any dues. And to me, that's and to others, I think that's the wrong messaging for why you want to be um, organizing in your workplace. And I think it sends the wrong message to the workers in some ways uh, that um, and that's. You know, I, I don't think I'm not mad at RWDSU for the for the work. And I think there's a lot we can learn from that and can continue to learn from. But I, I would also, you know, say that ALU, I think, did much better in identifying their bargaining size. I think a lot of people, myself included, were skeptical about their uh, chances of winning based on filing with uh, only 30 percent of the workforce. Um, and I'm so glad that I was wrong. And I'm happy to eat my words on that. Um, at the same time, I if I uh, filed for a union election with only 30% of the workforce engaged, if I hadn't had really serious structure tests before that, I would probably have a nervous breakdown because I'd be so scared um, about um, the risk to the workers there. Um, but I, I, I still think that ALU, uh, that strategy of just being on the ground and not going away and continuing to sign people up, continuing to be have coworkers, talk to coworkers, and build those relationships and build that, that solidarity, right? That's missing to bring that in and to bring in that class consciousness and recognize those common interests. That is just, it, you, you can't substitute that. You know, I, the fact that they had, um, it's a very diverse workplace. So having a lot of diverse voices made a big difference for them as well, I think. But that's, that's just the big factors there that really, I think can be replicated and can be um, used in campaigns across the U S and definitely that's, Everything that we see that's of value from that campaign, we're definitely trying to bring in. I, I want to circle around for a second to what you mentioned about recognition strikes and sit-down strikes. And I do think that is a huge open-ended question about, you know, I, um, I've talked to people, you know, pretty uh, experienced uh, labor heads in the labor movement doing serious work who are like, you can't win. Before this, we would say you can't win an NLR, NLRB election at Amazon. And just that would be their they're known, right, that, that, that they were assumption they were working off of. And so that ALU blew that out of the water is great, and I'm really glad because I, I agree, and, and there's the evidence, right, but I really think that ALU elections are winnable. But the biggest hurdle, I think, beyond just the union election is getting that contract that so many, you know, and Bernie was really, uh, home, you know, hammered this home during his candidacy as well, is that half the union elections in the United States um, – uh, the first year of, the, of that contract, they don't win a contract the first year. Um, a 33% of them don't win a contract the second year. And a lot of uh, employers are really, um, they basically, as a strategy, will run out the clock for a year without, uh, with doing, you know, slowing down the bargaining. And then after a year, they'll basically spearhead a decertification campaign against the union. And at a high turnover, high churn place like Amazon, it's going to be really important to help keep workers engaged during the contract fight to make sure that you're doing bargaining surveys and contract surveys, but also finding a way to press Amazon to reach a conclusion. And I'm not sure if that's recognition strikes. I've read up on that and I think that may be a direction to go, but I, it's, it's open the air, right? And um, there's risks in all these strategies. There's risks in waiting and there's risks in pressing further. The, the risk around pressing further, in my opinion, is that you really need solidarity at a high level to do that, like to take on a greater risk than the union election. So you need to be able to ramp up into a recognition strike or other types of actions that are going to that are going to 
um, press your case with the employer that it's in their interest to be to bargain and to um, reach a conclusion and to reach a contract. Yes, yeah, strike is a a high risk but even higher reward sort of situation. And you're absolutely right that the fight for the recognition and for the unionization itself is is only one step of the way and, and the fight for the contract is is the next step and continues to be the fight uh, moving forward uh, for years and years uh, often and I just want to note one thing that you said earlier in your comment uh, that's absolutely critical uh, to the probably the most powerful expression of the working class um, and of the labor movement in recent years, which would be the the teacher strikes, is that those strikes were so grounded in community organizing that teachers had built relationships with their students, with uh, their students' parents, with other organizations in the community, and built a broader program um, around uh, the demands that were unifying to the teachers, students, parents, community members. And that building yourself and rooting yourself in the community is so crucial for building power and, and demonstrating your power if you want to win the sort of contract that makes a material difference in people's lives. But I also just want to remind our listeners that you are tuning in to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. Today we're talking about Amazon Labor Union and the broader struggle to organize at Amazon and beyond. Uh, before we continue with uh, our discussion, I just want to um, let our listeners know that uh, we need money to stay on the air. Uh, the reason that we're able to have a conversation like we're having right now is because this is not corporate media. This is a, a different sort of place. Uh, this is um, a free speech radio that um, we bring on people who are fighting back against power, that they're trying to build power in, uh, and organize uh, in their own lives to improve their own conditions. Um, and so, to get to the station, you can uh, call 212-209-2950. Again, that's 212-209-2950 or go, go to WBAI.org. There's a lot of ways to donate. One of the best ways is you become a steady donor or you become a BAI buddy. You're giving a monthly donation, whether that's $5, $10, $20. This comes with a lot of benefits often that you get to uh, – I, I don't have any of them off the top of my head at the, at the moment, but there's a lot of stuff uh, that you can get, a lot of premiums that the station offers. So go onto the website, look into that, and um, please donate so that we can keep shows like Revolutions Per Minute on the air. Again, that number is 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950. So, Brian, I think we've, we've been hitting on this um, throughout the show – but I think a big question here is, what does the ALU victory mean for the labor movement? Uh, the ALU victory is huge because it's proof that uh, you can win NLRB elections. It's proof that you can organize an FC. It's proof that Amazon, um, a trillion-dollar multinational that is famous for union busting, um, can can be fought and won as long as you have worker solidarity and as long as you are focused on that and build that strength um, to, to unbreakable levels so that you can actually win your campaign. I think, I think it just demonstrates that organizing and deep organizing, which is what they did, um, really connecting with coworkers and connecting with each other and building that solidarity, 
makes is the is the root of all power in a, in a sense of of where the strength of any union ever comes from is that and, and that's a that has to be a reminder sometimes I think union bureaucrats many of them who are uh, amazing people and many of them who do great work but also many of them um, are far away from the organizing side of things sometimes and there can be a real disconnect from the sense of what gives a union strength and it really comes down to and, and you know uh, we've been reading in our chapter recently uh, class struggle unionism. Joe Burns' new book, really amazing. I think it's the other half of kind of, of the, if you've read Jane McLevy, if you read Joe Burns, I think it really helps paint a, a more broad picture of the struggles within unions. But um, I, I think there's there's just so much that ALU has shown through their actions that you can change conditions. And, and I don't think that necessarily you can do it again at Amazon with 15 people, but they pretty much did that campaign based on their interviews with 15 people in the core um, for that one location. And so that's... 15 people um, building power with their coworkers to unionize like 7,000, 8,000 people. That, that means a lot. Um, that's, that's a huge, huge message to workers and a huge message to, um, to Amazon and to corporations that, that labor is, is not going away and exploitation means um, there's resistance. Uh, absolutely. That's a beautiful way of putting it. And I think, uh, what's really encouraging is that ALU has heard from, um, I, I think, 100 or over 100 facilities since their victory in their immediate aftermath, uh, workers around the country who are looking to organize with them. So it seems like if this momentum builds and it looks like it is building, you could potentially have uh, dozens of facilities organized within the next few years, and that would be kind of the transformative uh push the labor movement needs because private sector unionization rate uh, remains very low and something has to be done about that. So uh, what are your thoughts on reversing the tide of uh, deunionization in the private sector? A- absolutely. Um, yes. Uh, you know, Amazon is the second largest employer in the United States. They're on track to be the largest employer. Um, they, uh, Constantly among many other companies, but they're, they're one of the big contributors to degrading working conditions for working class people in the United States. And it's, I, I absolutely think that this, you know, this decade is critical in building labor strength and power. I, I point out in when I give talks on, on salting to people and to groups uh, about labor salting and taking on work like this. Um, I point out that, you know, in the 1920s, uh, early twenties, which has a lot of similarities to us today. It was a gilded age, the roaring twenties. Uh, you had just come out of a pandemic and, um, uh, in the twenties, union density was about similar as it is today, about 9%. But, uh, they were able to get to 33% union density, uh, by 1937, like 17 years later, basically. Or, or uh, and so that's that, and that was through, um, in fits and starts sometimes, right? Like in like 1933, 1934 were massive years, massive years for unionization. So it can come in waves. Um, and it's important to recognize that, um, I think climate, um, uh, climate struggle is just going to increase over this decade and get much worse. There's going to be much more displacement. Um, it's much more likely that we'll see a lot more, uh, issues and problems within our, within our government and other things going on and a lot more instability at a lot of levels, including the higher levels of finance. Obviously they're floating on six or seven different crazy financial bubbles. Um, so I think it's going to really uh, be crucial that we organize in this decade as much as we can and build as much new density to actually achieve, 
um, social change. And, and um, when I go and talk to Sunrise or other groups about this, I emphasize that, that, and they recognize that too, that mobilization isn't working. I think most people in the United States recognize that mobilization, just coming out to an event, you know, um, um, yelling at, at power doesn't change what power does. Um, so it's, it's, it's a start, but it's not enough. So, um, organizing has to be that other piece of it. And I, um, I've been really, uh, working hard to build out with other people, at, uh, within the DSA, build out a more comprehensive and coherent strategy on organizing Amazon, including a, a defined win condition and then a credible plan to win. Um, because I, I, as I got involved in Amazon organizing over the last few years, um, I, it's, it's kind of like, um, Medicare for all in some ways. And I'm, and I don't mean to slight this in, in the least on Medicare for all. I just mean that, um, sometimes when you say Medicare for all, people see it as such a huge nebulous, like national problem. They don't know what thread or where to start to kind of try to tease out change. And I, and I think that's similar to Amazon. It's such a huge, massive beast. People are like, I have no idea where to start on this, on this project or where I can get the most, um, results. And if I have limited resources, which we all do, how I'm going to actually make those resources count. And, and I think, um, uh, the work we're doing right now uh, is reaching out to tons of DSA and YDSA chapters and other or, other groups to really um, make it clear that if if you want to organize Amazon, this is the time, and then um, build the resources to help that happen. Um, and there's a lot of things we're doing along that line. Uh, I, I don't want to give all the details on, but I will say that uh, um, it's a very exciting time. There is a lot of organizing going on, and I think there's going to be a lot more in the next few years, um, definitely, not only just with ALU, but just before ALU even there were a lot of people doing organizing work and um, determined to, to defeat um, this evil giant. And, and um, I think the the seriousness of the issue right now in terms of like just how much labor conditions are degrading, it's, it's maybe happening fast enough. I hope in some ways, I'm not an accelerationist, but I hope it's happening fast enough that people can see within their lifetime the change and see how it's gotten worse. And I, I think that's, you know, one of the factors that Amazon is they, they don't want workers there more than three years. I think partly because they don't want them to, to see how badly the conditions have degraded over that time. Right. But the idea that you have a 12 hour mega cycles, day, night, day shifts, night shifts, and then uh, mandatory overtime and no real control of your schedule. That's a degradation. That's, that's a, a slide uh, downward for work for everyone in the United States. Um, you know, we fought really hard here locally for um, Nabisco workers who were striking um, last year, a 40-day strike here. Portland, um, they really, really showed so much heart and so much bravery. Right now, they're working 12 on, 2 off, 12 to 14-hour shifts to make snacks, right? And so that's by design by their employer. And they're working on changing that, and they're working on changing more conditions. But that's the that's the factor even our unionized brethren are sometimes under rough conditions. And you can see that also in, you know, the Bessemer, Alabama fight had a factor there as well, where I think the main employer in that town, other than Amazon, was a union uh, site and they were paying less than Amazon. So it's, it's a, it's a thing where the union density and the militancy is really going to be the factor about how we're going to change conditions and how we're going to, um, really, uh, actually build that power and go back to, you know, um, you know, in the old days, the IWW, every member was assault, right? In the industrial strategy. And Amazon is the closest thing we have to massive factories, an employer in every state, um, that gets massive subsidies from the government. It, it's, it's, if, 
if Amazon can be targeted effectively, that can change the lives of nearly a million people and then have knock-on effects for all the other workers as well and increasing and improving their conditions. And the the thing too about Amazon is when they open up a warehouse, the wages in the surrounding area are depressed for the next two years in studies um, in the logistics sector. So, so they're, they're actively, you know, um, destroying the U S postal service. They're actively destroying the, one of the largest um, uh, private sector contracts in the U S with UPS um, and that's not acceptable. I, I, I think there's a lot of workers that are recognizing that not only are they alienated from their labor, but that it's only getting worse and that their kids are going to have it worse than them. And that has to be a, a deal breaker at some point um, to stand up and say that that's not acceptable. And I, so, so rebuilding that class consciousness is, is tough because um, you know, uh, a lot of young people today uh, never heard the song nine to five by Dolly Parton or, or know as much about the the working class uh, um, history as as we used to, but I think also people are recognizing that they ha- something has to change, and I think ALU strategies and um, workers organizing with other workers, like at Starbucks, is really um, what's going to change conditions and building that bravery together, right? Building those working class muscles to recognize how to build solidarity and how to change uh, and transform the lives of your family and your coworkers. That's that's in a, in this time when we're like atomized and consumers, where where many of our lives may seem meaningless at some level. This is, I think, where we're going. I I, I just don't think people can um, invest too much more heavily into culture wars and into online um, frippery. I think it really has to come down to do do you mean something, and is this life worth fighting for? Absolutely. I think uh, there's a few different things that you mentioned there that I just want to highlight and expand on uh, this notion that history moves in waves. And you, you uh, mentioned the 1920s and the shift to the 1930s, the dramatic increase in unionization. And you also had an increase in militancy as well, the 1934 strike wave where you saw the docks across the West Coast paralyzed by the ILWU. We saw the um, Toledo Autolite strike uh, for recognition, where you saw the Minneapolis general strike led by the Teamsters, where you had um, textile workers all all across the East Coast, uh, hundreds of thousands of them shutting down production, and that this strike wave was crucial in um, pushing forward the second New Deal, which included Social Security and many other um, dramatic reforms. But... I think we're hopefully we're heading to another phase of that history. And we were talking about private sector unionization, um, but we're also going to need massive public sector workers and those workers better be unionized if we're fighting uh, something like climate change effectively. And I have another question uh, that I want to ask you, but I just want to let our listeners know that we are opening up the phone lines. Um, We have around 10 minutes left in the show. We'd love for you to call in. That number is 212-209-2877. Again, that number is 212-209-2877. Call us to talk about ALU, the labor movement, uh, whatever you got in your mind. Uh, But uh, while we're waiting for a call, I just want to ask you, what is the DSA Logistics Committee? And you were mentioning the UPS contract. Uh, so what other struggles in the logistics sector uh, do you have in your, your eyes on? 
Um, the TSA Logistics Committee is mostly focused on Amazon and then also focused on uh, UPS Teamsters primarily right now, especially with the UPS contract coming up in 2023. So this is a, a very important time to build um, strike readiness within UPS and within the Teamsters and to also um, um, hopefully uh, be a militant force um, encouraging and strengthening the Teamsters to, to um, be more militant and be more uh, democratic as they've been heading in that direction. And it's a great sign. Um, but, but the Amazon work is also just recognizing, you know, not only do we have a labor resolution that was passed um, um, at the last uh, convention of the DSA that asks every member of the DSA to either consider joining a union, if they're in a union to strengthen that union um, or, and, and that's a, that's a broad uh, request of everyone, but it's, it, the, the, the labor committee is basically trying to see how we can um, bring that into fruition and how we can um, effectively organize Amazon in a way where we can take advantage of the fact that the DSA um, is in every state and is um, uh, spread out across the United States in the same way that Amazon is. And that there's a lot of opportunities for us to organize uh, within Amazon um, as a very accessible and a highly strategic target. Um, and um, this is the kind of work that we can do. And I think as a socialist organization, we were we were built for in many ways. Um, and it's also I just from my personal you know, point of view, I find labor work extremely grounding. And it's an incredibly valuable political education for DSA members is is it's easy to theorize about what the working class thinks. Um, but get on a picket line or get on a strike line or take a take a job at Amazon. And then you get to find out real directly. And um uh, and share in that struggle and not be, you know, uh, opining from above or from a distance. You're actually there in solidarity, shoulder to shoulder. And I, and I think that makes a big difference. And, and, um, the, the labor committee, uh, or commission has worked to try to build that out within the DSA to help, um, make that accessible to more members and to make that accessible to more people within our movement, because, uh, this is very, very valuable and very useful work. Um, there was somebody within the DSA recently, and I, uh, I'm going to paraphrase badly here, but they they said, you know, the work that um, there was a, a former member of the DSA who who went to go organize at ALU Amazon, and you know, she did uh, a lot more in within that one act uh, over a few years than much of the DSA has done in the United States in some ways. And I'm not trying to, to um, poo poo uh, the DSA. I love the DSA. I've gotten a ton from it, and I'm, and that's why I'm in the DSA, because I think it's the most um, strategically situated organization in the United States that can actually build a mass movement to change conditions. But um, I, I think, obviously, as we mentioned before, labor is key to all of that. Labor is, is going to be key to organizing workers to actually press for um, better, you know, uh, reproductive rights, to press for environmental rights, to uh, environmental justice, to press for civil rights and social justice and and racial justice and every other aspect, uh, gender justice. All those things uh, come out of power and having power uh, as a social force because that's what power respects, right? So, so organizing Amazon, organizing UPS, um, strengthening and and building in the uh, militancy required that socialists recognize is required to actually win um, is 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 our mission and our task. And I, and I think we've done some really good uh, uh, inroads into starting that process. And, I, and I'm really excited to see where it's going to go. 
That's absolutely correct. Only the organized working class can shift the balance of power in society to actually um, meet the demands that uh, DSA is is pushing for. Uh, that's the core of any program, uh, making any program a reality. I just want to ask Max, uh, do we have any callers on the line? No, one came and went. Uh, well, we lost one caller, but if you want to call in or you want to call back, that is number is 212-209-2877. Again, the number is 212-209-2877. And, uh, you know, we have, we only have a few minutes left in the show. Just wonder if there's any organizing stories you have that you want to, um, share with our audience. Any, any, uh, maybe any fun moments or anything that you think was, uh, uh, transformative in people's lives that you've been involved in in the past. Yeah. Um, I, I first just want to express gratitude for the opportunity to speak on this subject. Um, it, and also gratitude for being able to do labor work. I think it's been really important and I think it's, um, uh, grounding for myself. Uh, but, uh, I would say, yeah, I, I glossed over this a little bit when you asked about my background, but I, uh, I spent most of my adult life as a baker doing artisan baking bread, you know, uh, making it by hand. Um, seeing the results of the, of the product at a, at a local company. And um, after working there for almost two decades, um, I left that company and um, because I was alienated from my labor and because they put people in above me who basically um, uh, didn't respect the workers and um, I couldn't abide by that and um, didn't really know what to do until I joined the DSA. And uh, we were reading as a chapter here locally in 2018, um, organizing for sorry, No Shortcuts, Organized for Power in the New Golden Age by Jane McLevy. And one of the co-chairs of the chapter at the time was also um, a, a working mom with, with two kids and a family. And, and I saw a place where I actually could do work and that was uh, that that um, I could recognize as a, as a place that was welcoming. Uh, and I went back to um, my co-workers at the place I used to work and asked them, I knew the organic leaders, and asked them what they wanted to do. And they decided that they wanted to organize and then um, we organized like crazy and uh, won that union vote and then won a contract campaign um, through the pandemic. It took 13 months and it was tough and it wasn't you know, ideal. But um, what was really important out of that is I had so much respect for the bravery and for the, the fortitude of the workers that I was able to externally organize with. That's what inspired me to go and get a job at Amazon and be the labor salt inside Amazon and do that work. But all of that came out of the DSA, and that's what I really think is important, that people sometimes, um, you know, it's funny, um, uh, I think DSA sometimes is a punching bag on, on the online or whatever else, but uh, I, I think it's been so critical here locally to see how uh, able we've been able to use our local chapter to bolster and strengthen um, labor efforts, as well as other important electoral efforts here in this, in Oregon, um, you know, uh, Starbucks. Brian, I don't want to, I don't want to cut you off. We have a caller. I just want to give them a, the brief chance to to chime in. Please do. Uh, uh, we have a caller. You're live on Revolutions per Minute on WBAI 99.5 FM. What's your name and what's your question or comment? Please keep it brief. We've got to wrap up the show. Well, I guess he went away again. Well, uh, we lost the caller yet again, but uh, I think it's uh, time for us to wrap up anyway. Thank you so much, Brian, for joining us on Revolutions Per Minute. Uh, it's been a blast having you and uh, hearing your perspective on um, the labor movement. 
Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, we uh, this has been Jack Devine with Revolutions Per Minute. We'll see you um, organizing your workplace, your building around the streets. Uh, we'll catch you uh, next week, Wednesday at 9 p.m.